Hello everyone, I am Harry Foku and I connect businesses in the gaming industry with freelance tech solutions and I'm your host. Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today I'm joined by Owen Deherty, Robert Alderson, Marcus Walter and Callum Godfrey to discuss giving developers freedom and ownership. Before we begin, let's start with some introductions. Owen, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Hi, my name is Owen O'Doherty. Yeah, I am uh, in the games industry about 10, 10, 12 years now. And um, yeah, I work as a game lead, uh, creative lead, um, game director at Cybo Games. Uh, we make Subway Surfers, amongst other things. And nice to be on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. My pleasure. Robert, how about you? So, uh, Rob Olson, uh, Studio Technical Director at Noid Games, which is a newly started studio within the Spin Master umbrella, Spin Digital more specifically. I'm actually returning to the industry, spent the last 14 years doing uh, finance software for NASDAQ, enterprise grade, which is interesting. But I, before that, I spent almost 20 years building core rendering tech for all kinds of 3D software based. So, yes. Fantastic. And Marcus, how about you? Hello, everyone. Yeah, Marcus Walter. Yeah, I, I work for King. I've uh, done so for the last 10 years. And prior to that, I was in another gaming company. So it's been a while now um, uh, at King. I've been doing a, a, a bunch of different things, actually, over the last 10 years. Um, so it's been a, a nice ride. Um, yeah. Awesome. And finally, Callum. Cool. Yeah, I think I, I take the title of the old man of the group. My industry career is now 23 years young. Uh, got started in 1999. Career of two halves, really. I, I started in AAA PC console. Uh, and then I guess around 2010, saw that mobile was the new big thing and switched over to that uh, and have never looked back that, uh, back since. Been really into free-to-play and mobile, uh, particularly from a product design uh, and production perspective for the last 12 or so years of my career. Awesome. So everyone has a question on giving developers that freedom and ownership that we talked about at the start. So I want to start with Robert's question. So Robert, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah, my question is uh, actually around the why we do need to give on freedom and ownership to developers and should it give, be given equally to everyone? The reason I'm asking that is because I don't think we sort of we can discuss this without discussing why. All righty, Owen, if you don't mind, can you start? What do you think? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, well, I think the biggest thing is uh, if we don't give freedom to the teams, uh, at least from my experience, and we don't uh, give them ownership, uh, you generally get a lack of engagement or in the long term, the engagement falls off. And a team that's not engaged leads to worse solutions and a team that is engaged leads to better solutions to the problems that we face when building these behemoths of games. Uh, there's lots of challenges that come along. Um, and when you have engagement, you're basically in a, uh, increasing the cyclical nature of the iterative timeline that you have to do on, on the process. So it just it having an engaged team is going to get to better solutions faster. Uh, and having uh, engage to get engagement, you need to give freedom and ownership. This is kind of the way I think about it. Um, if anyone wants to piggyback off that, um, happy to hear your thoughts. What do you think about giving it equally, if you don't mind, Owen? Like, should you give it equally to everyone, even like the most junior well, of junior? I think there's another question later on that kind of tackles this a bit better, but um, I can kind of uh, talk a little bit about that. I think uh, ownership and the quality of ownership, depending on the level of the person who is in the team. Uh, it kind of comes down to how much uh, direction that person needs, right? So someone in a low level position, like a junior, generally needs more direction, both on the product they're working on, potentially on the company's direction or the, the team's direction. Um, and when you have someone who's more senior, who's been through the ringer a few times, uh, it's more likely that the direction can be broader. And so the freedom and ownership can be given uh, uh, more so. Um, some people don't handle total freedom very well. Like, you know, there's anxieties that can come in. They don't, they want to do things correctly. So you have to, uh, you know, have one-to-ones with your team members, make sure that everyone is okay with the levels of ownership they have, kind of make a pact with them and make sure you you come back to that in the monthly check-ins with that person so that we're on track. There's nothing being left to the cracks, but, um, 
I think equality is based on the quality of ownership is based on how much ownership that team member is uh, asking for and how much they've proven that they can take. Yeah, I was just going to fill in on that, that I think that it also kind of fosters seniority. You, you know, you you give freedom and, and maybe people are you know, obviously nervous and a bit afraid, depending on what you're doing, I guess. But that, um, in my experience, at least, that will fairly quickly change. Uh, you need to you need to trust people in the end. And I think I had some question on that later, uh, especially when it come to, comes to um, whoever your stakeholder is because they usually don't have the same insight into what you're doing, um, then you need to really uh, be uh, communicative about what's happening and uh, to, to you know, uh, inspire some trust. Um, but definitely, if you don't have uh, uh, seniority or whatever you call it, uh, uh, then it will definitely foster that type of culture, which is, I, I think, an, an advantage. Yeah, I, I think about um, uh, the, the freedom we give people within a set of constraints. And I know constraints and freedom is kind of an oxymoron, but if you give if you give people unlimited, infinite freedom to do what they want whenever they want, then you end up in situations where they might go away from the desired product direction, the desired audience fit. So I think there's some level of having a governing set of principles, a general direction or a vision, if you will, that you want a game to go towards, uh, or a particular audience type you're keeping in mind, or a particular thing you're aiming towards. That acts as a, a set of guide rails, right? Like when you go bowling, you don't just throw the bowling ball across everywhere, you're aiming down this very particular lane. Setting that direction, I think, is really important for teams, but then giving them the ability to sort of push at those constraints a little bit, to, to push up against the boundaries you set them and challenge them to try and do that for good, justifiable reasons to get the best out of them. I actually find that um, a few constraints can be the most useful thing in the world, particularly for creative people to think within those boxes and boundaries. Awesome. I want to bring that to Robert now for some closing thoughts. What are you thinking? We already touched on most of these uh, small, I mean, on all the different aspects, but I think that sort of, to me, sort of, it is about condensing it down to innovation. To me, sort of, the key part about why we need to give freedom and ownership is actually to fuel innovation. Because without that freedom and that sort of the ownership, when you get the sort of the pride of actually accomplishing something, it's very hard to innovate sort of all sort of all people that really want to sort of excel they need sort of that freedom and ownership to show that they can excel and that sort of that is fueling the innovation that they can bring to the table now that said not all people want that and i think this is sort of the really tricky part about this because some people actually just want to maintain or refine existing products so the key balance is to sort of to give freedom of ownership to the people that can sort of fuel off it and actually sort of create ex excellent things that you know that you couldn't even think about and sort of at the same time sort of give another sort of freedom to maintain so to speak but give the more sort of guardrails about what we need to do how it should be done etc so it's sort of it is i think to me it's very much sort of a dual-edged Thing, sort of what freedom is but uh, to me sort of it's key that at least sort of to to appreciate that is it's the one of the biggest drivers for innovation yeah um once again i think that that um, uh, it, it's pretty obvious to me at least uh, i don't know um, i generally i, I think it, it it's it's more uh, gratifying for me if i you know can start from the beginning, basically. I don't like when people come pointing their hands to me and say, you need to do this, 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 this. It's super uncreative, right? You don't need, you don't need to think anything yourself. You just rely on, on you know, some sort of bullets of things that you should do, uh, or, uh, rather than being part of it, something from start to finish, um, really being, uh, you know, driving something and i think that's core to to uh, to this as well you have the the freedom and liberty to to be part of something uh you feel ownership uh and you have the mandate to do uh pretty much anything you want within certain guardrails yeah i i, I share a lot of the sentiment behind that actually marcus i, I think there's there's kind of a an almost relay effect with creativity, right? Where I, I, for the teams I like to work with, I almost challenge them to kind of like be inspired by the previous step in the chain. So you start with a product vision and a game design, 
and again design tries to take the product vision of the best possible the most interesting version of that within the constraints of their freedom then that gets handed to the implementation side the developers the artists and their challenge to try and one-up the creative or one-up the innovation that will try and push it to their their natural logical extreme of where they've gone and if you can try and empower the teams within their disciplines within their skills to try and always be as as autonomous and creative and innovative as they possibly can i think that's where real magic starts to happen because they'll start feeding off of each other's energy they'll create synergies uh, they'll have those moments where they'll just really surprise and delight you with the things they end up creating rather than just being this fairly formulaic it follows the design document kind of process that we've had for a lot of time uh, for a long time sorry in the sort of the old days of the industry 100 percent, i like that uh given that we have a few minutes on this question i wanted to tackle a bit like ownership like what does that actually mean does that mean like praise if you get a good job oh my god you've done it all wrong you had ownership like any comments on like what does ownership actually mean marcus yeah to me it's um, um when you without anyone really telling you to do so is ready to step out of of you know your ordinary daily thing to maybe fix something that is broken uh, you get uh, uh, an, an enormous sense of ownership and, uh, you know, this is my baby. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that it actually stands through, uh, you know, fires and, and things breaking. Um, that is key to what I think is ownership in, in this context. Right? I guess the other side of that is um, you're tackling ownership from very much a pride point of view, right? Or a, I want to do this because it's my baby is what you said, right? And that's that's a fair aspect of ownership. There's many things that you have responsibility for in life that you may not think of as something that you care for that much, but you have to do it anyway. And that to me is responsibility. And so ownership and responsibility have to tie together in some way. Sometimes you're doing this thing, not because it's your baby or not because it's uh, something that you absolutely love or care for, but it's because it's your duty and that you've got responsibility to yourself and to maybe those around you to get the job done or to get this thing completed. And so I think ownership also comes to an acceptance of responsibility and uh, then being able to drive that forward. So sometimes, you know, in a creative job, you can have great days where you get ownership to do the things you really love doing and you get to show your creative spark. But sometimes you do the, you know, the drudge work that you have to do on a weekly basis and update these documents and make sure that this person is informed about this thing, because uh, if you don't do it, then you're letting yourself down or you're letting your team down. And that's the responsibility you're signing up for. And it's about making sure the responsibility is very clearly explained to those who have it and why they have it and how they can act upon it. I think about it that way as well. But I obviously love the first part, too. As long as it if it is your baby, you're going to love it more and you're going to have better sense of ownership or a stronger sense of it. But uh, sometimes there's minor aspects there that you just have to do because it's your responsibility. Yeah, I think just to sort of build upon that, one of the one of the key things that comes with this level of ownership or responsibility, as you put it, Owen, is is knowing when to uh, when to kill your baby, right? Like when to look at it and go, you know what? I gave it my best shot. It's been a really good run. We tried these different things. We gave it a go, um, but for reasons A, B, C, X, Y, Z, it just hasn't worked. Uh, having the ability and the the maturity to to be able to put your hands up and say, you know what? I took a punt on this. I thought it was a great idea. It was wrong. It didn't work. Here's what I've learned from this. Because uh, that then gives the team or the individuals the experience to go and make bigger bets in the future, to take riskier opportunities, to learn from their mistakes previously. So I think part of giving people freedom is actually being, being uh, as leaders, open to us giving them room to fail, but also being willing for them to learn from those failures so in the future they become better as individuals and as teams collectively. 100%. Uh, I'm thinking from a developer's perspective, like when I'm chatting to, like say, a Unity developer, if they've been responsible for a key part of the project from a previous project when they're looking for either the next role or looking for a promotion it's so useful to have that thing to point to right so i think it's a massive benefit from like a top-down perspective you're going to give them it's a gift in a sense because once they have that thing that they can work on uh, that's something that they can point to later uh, robert yeah i mean i i agree with the responsibility part and i think that's key to it uh and the, the only issue I'm seeing is sort of is that you can actually have responsibility without ownership also. And that's really dangerous, right? When you have somebody that's responsible for something because you articulated responsibility without feeling ownership, then it doesn't mean anything and typically degenerate into something that actually falls flat, right? Doesn't work. 
because they're not taking the ownership in that case. They just have the responsibility. So I agree, I agree with Aaron that sort of you need the duality of it. You need to feel the ownership for the responsibility to work. Right. And, and that awesome. sort of instilling that is important. Awesome. I like it. Lovely. Let's move on to the next question. Callum, uh, what is your question and the context behind it? Cool. So my question is, uh, how does a team's experience level affect the degree of ownership that we're able to give them? Uh, and the context behind this is, as I'm sure you guys will know, uh, we will work with teams who have varying different degrees of experience, either very mature teams who've been together for a long time, had a lot of success, uh, sometimes a mixed bag of teams, some really experienced seniors, some less experienced juniors, and sometimes working with teams who have no experience whatsoever. Now, I'm kind of curious as a collective, what is the what is the general consensus we think is the right amount of freedom to give teams based on their experience? Would you give the same level of freedom to a junior team as you would to a senior team, for example? Awesome. I want Marcus to take this first, if that's all right. Marcus, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think you need a good mix, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree that it's it's. Uh, I I would like to give the same amount of freedoms to freedom to everyone, but maybe that's not possible. Not because I don't trust people to, you know, not be technically skilled enough or something like that. It's more uh, uh, a way of people making making people feel safe about their, what what they're doing. Uh, for a long time, we I, I, I kind of had the idea that yeah, you should be able to push your first commit the same day, the first day at your new job, uh, and probably in the in like in the afternoon of that day, that piece of code go, would go live. Uh, that was one of the iterations we had, uh, like releasing our our stuff several times a day. Um, now coming to a new place, that's of course super scary. Um, and I think you need a good good mix there, uh, and and the, the ones that you you have in your team to start with, like in my experience again, uh, from you know being in startups and things, you have a bunch of friends. Do you start up and you you know it's it's probably very comfortable and the seniority level is pretty high, and then you hire a bunch of people and you know you uh, ease them into that. Uh, I. I'm not 100% sure that that my first attempt at that, you know, pushing people over the edge <laughs> the first day was super successful. But if you have that the mix, that's my point, it's going to be um, uh, a, a fairly smooth ride and uh, the experience level will, will go up pretty quickly. And once again, I don't think it's necessarily about technical skill. It's more about making people feel comfortable and 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 not being afraid of doing mistakes right i think that's also key uh, we were touching about on that earlier that, that you know it's okay to fail uh, you learn from it and then you don't make the same mistake again hopefully uh, but if you do it's also okay um, and um, you know uh, that trust uh, and that that guidance from from uh, more senior people uh, is uh, super important so uh, i don't know I, I know numbers about the mix, but I think there is like having a good mix is, is, is uh, very nice. Uh, just to comment on that also, uh, when I hire people, I, you know, uh, a wish from my side would be to hire someone that I feel is better than me, at least technically. I, you know, I want to feel almost intimidated by, by the technical skill of this per person because I, then I know uh, you know, you can do the work, uh, the, the rest of it, if, it's, if you're not experienced, if you're, uh, you know, shy or, or you feel a bit intimidated on, on, on you know, uh, pushing commits and going live the first day, that's okay. You can, that, that's going to be a, a smoother ride. Um, so once again, the mix and then uh, stepping up from that, it's going to be uh, fairly comfortable, right? I think. Yeah, you used a, a word in there, Marcus, which I think is a really interesting distinction, and one that I think as, as, as an industry we sometimes forget is an important part of this, which is trust. When we talk about freedom and we talk about experience, what we're actually saying is, you know, I trust you to go and do this thing as, a, as an individual or as a team. Um, and, and with with a level of seniority or a number of years experience, I guess that almost comes with an implicit or maybe even an explicit level of trust that you are able to give individuals or teams just straight out of the box right you would expect a 10-year developer versus a one-year developer 
to be able to do more complex things, to be better at, uh, like your example of committing stuff on day one, probably finding stuff more autonomously that they can look at in the code base and add value immediately. So I think when we talk about experience, one of the one of the things we often don't talk about is that that implicitly also means we give trust to these people inside our teams as well. Awesome. I want to take this to Robert now. Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue sort of spinning on sort of the same lines as Marcus, but I, I would like to focus on the fact that sort of the the question actually centers around a team, right? Which sort of is the key part of, to me, the key part about this question, and I think that sort of the team composition is the key to sort of um, sort of how you can handle this. Because if you do have sort of a team that has sort of, I'm gonna use another expression, seasoned veterans, sort of it's typically not about years, but it's sort of about experience level. And that can come quickly or slowly, depending on sort of the people that we're talking about. So seasoned veterans and typically up and coming members of the team, if you have a really good sort of high velocity team, you, they can typically tackle any challenge, no matter the complexity, with confidence. On the other hand, you might have a team that doesn't have sort of the right composure and sort of them tackling the same challenge will typically sort of fail without getting a lot of external guidance. So it so it, 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 it is very much about sort of team dynamics and sort of how the team play together. And typically a team actually not consisting of a singular sort of speciality it's typically a number of specialities that needs to work together i mean it all depends on the problems that we're attacking but typically sort of when you really when you want to when you want to build something you typically need to transcend different things and make them work together and make proper integrations that work together so that the end product works and this is sort of where sort of the team dynamics come into play because in each individual won't be able to make the complete feature it's always a team play, which is why sort of a a team that has a right setup will excel, and one that doesn't will probably falter or or have sort of a hard time trying to do the same thing. So I mean, it it is it is sort of it is about sort of finding the right balance and also catching if a team is on a flow, sort of is sort of working or not, and then sort of stepping in and trying to sort of augment that in some way or give the guidance or sort of mix up whatever you need to do right but you need to get sort of you need to get the team into the fifth gear so to speak awesome uh, owen any thoughts on that yeah a lot of them <laughs> when you have uh different teams at different levels like every team is going to have you at different levels not everyone's at the same level you have different team sizes different projects you're trying to deal with there's never going to be one team that's the same as another so Let's just let's acknowledge that quickly. Um, this kind of comes down to, I guess, good product management. Like when you're thinking ahead of putting someone in a team, either from an internal move or from a hire, uh, you know, don't put someone into the job that you don't think can do it, right? And you have to make sure that you have the right hiring practices. You have to make sure you have the right internal vetting. You talk to people, make sure that they're able to step up to or step uh, into a uh, new challenge maybe it's inside their comfort zone maybe it's outside so i think that if every team member is different and you're making sure your hiring process is correct at, uh, both internally or externally you're then going to hopefully have a team in place that you believe can tackle the problem in or the project in a broad stroke right so uh, that's that's kind of one aspect to it i got i got kind of in i got thrown in the deep end my first role i was given uh, a lot of ownership, obviously within guard, guardrails that we've sp spoken about. But my first role was very much like, you're a junior, but you're also a lead and go. Like, and it was like, run the team, run the projects. And what I think was important about that is the organization I was working for at the time uh, assessed that the value of this project was worth or worthy of a junior leading it to some level. And if they fail to succeed, you know, it's if they succeed, great for the organization. And if they fail, it's not the end of the world. So I think like putting people in the deep end can actually be a really good thing because you get to gauge uh, how they can have they sink or swim early on potentially. And if you're there to kind of catch them so they don't drown, you can kind of go, okay, we gave you all this freedom and now we're kind of pull it back a bit to help you out. Here's like some armbands for a while or whatever, a rubber ducky ring that you can uh, wear around you just so that you can uh, keep afloat. Um, but I think going at the deep end can allow you to identify quickly 
who is stepping up for ownership and who's able to run and uh, uh, do their own owner take their own ownership and show that they're a good team player or help the team itself uh, lift up and uh, take accountability and ownership. So uh, with that in mind and that experience that I've had, I kind of try and give that to my team as much as I can so that everyone, uh, so I can kind of get the same perspective from them that I had when I was first on a new team or in, my, in a new project, especially if they're junior. Um, yes, yeah, sorry I broke off for a second. I think a really interesting sort of um, segue out of that is that with uh, with the idea that there, there are different experience levels inside teams, people who've got different strengths, different weaknesses, different skill sets and so on, naturally you'll find some people who perhaps um, are kind of ceiling capped in terms of their experience or their skill or, or even their own creative ambition, like how far they can sort of visualize or project the thing might go that they're working on. Um, one of the fun, or I guess not so fun challenges I've had a bunch of times in my career is trying to help take less experienced teams collectively and bring senior people into those teams and have them start trying to work with them to kind of impart their knowledge, to help level the rest of the team up, bring them up to that person's perceived level. Um, and some of the challenges around that person, uh, their experience being a thing that's very difficult to transfer to others, uh, culture fit, experience fit, expectation management. I just wondered as a sort of a follow-on question for my original one, how have you guys um, uh, how have you guys dealt with those kind of situations before where you've been trying to bring different people together with different backgrounds and experiences to try and make a, a team that is greater than some of its parts? It's a tough question. I don't, so if, to think of the question, it's uh, the pulling together a team with different levels to try and make it better some of the parts. I think just the first thing that comes to my head is that a lot of people who've worked in the industry a long time kind of get sometimes stuck in their ways and there's biases that get created and you you kind of have uh you know oh this is how i did it before and this is how we have to do it now and and, and that can be interestingly challenged by people who come in who are inexperienced right maybe from a new industry like they're experienced but maybe not for the same industry or they're new into the industry or new into a job or you know they've only been in one place before and they can bring an inspiration uh, aspect to it where they can just go and do something and say look I did this thing what does it does this inspire you or what do you think and that can challenge the way people think and I think being open to you know challenging each other on how uh, we think or how do we catch our biases to some degree is important maybe like really strong retros and like workshops around uh, making sure the ways of working are getting oiled every week and getting refined and when when someone comes to the table with something that's uh, challenging and potentially reshaping how we think about things to acknowledge that and capture it as learning so making sure that the team are growing with each other um, and not one person uh, or a, a certain aspect of a person that's trying to dominate how something should be done because every project is different yeah i mean i i think that what i have multiple experiences of 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 putting together uh, teams of senior people that actually failed that is sort of that's the most sort of common denominator that sort of typically failed and it's failing in my mind very much to what you say though and that is that is the fact that they always have prejudice about how things should be done and they're they're typically at odd with odds with each other so the best successes i had is actually when I assembled uh, smaller teams, so maybe two to three people of actually very junior, but sort of fairly fresh and junior people and having them sort of putting them on more or less sort of isolated assignments where sort of where they're getting the appropriate sort of technical guidance and can grow into that. Because they, they are sort of, they are typically very adaptable to sort of out of the box thinking, sort of attacking uh, challenges with a new set of eyes and not sort of bringing along, this is my history. This is the way I've done it. This is the way I'm always going to do it. I mean, it, it, it's it's funny, right? But sort of putting together sort of, you know, a a, a sort of like Premier League uh, uh, team with all, you know, with all the rock stars in it and have them play together is the thing that is really, really hard. Yeah, I think one of, one of the things that always springs to mind when I think about this as a topic is there are there are certain types of people with certain personalities where they can either be very good doers or more like very good leaders or good mentor figures. Um, a, a very good friend of mine is one of the best mentor figures I think I've ever worked with in the games industry where he is a nightmare to schedule. He's a, he like he won't commit to anything. 
Um, but you give him a team to lead and he is phenomenally good at helping them get the very, very best out of themselves. Um, he's much better at sort of taking a team, seeing the raw qualities of them, figuring out their strengths and weaknesses, using those to interplay off of each other really nicely and structuring teams around their collective strengths rather than their collective weaknesses and just getting that team aligned really, really quickly and making really good stuff. As I say, he's a terrible doer. He's much better as a mentor. You could not expect this person to, you know, turn up on time for meetings or doing the stuff that we consider normal good behavior in a business sense, um, but a phenomenal people leader whose own experience allowed him to level up the experience of the people he worked with as well. And therefore to give them more creative freedom, and more autonomy and ownership of the projects just by having him involved in, in leading that team. Fantastic. Lovely. Let's move on to Marcus's question. Marcus, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah, so my question was, does freedom to engineers mean less control for any stakeholders? And there was a follow-up for that question as well. Um, if that's the case, how should we assure that any stakeholders feel safe, uh, you know, that we deliver on timely and with expected quality, et cetera, et cetera. And the context there is probably for or it is you know being in a, in a bunch of companies where you usually have gone from you know a small team um, very dedicated and a lot of transparency uh, across uh, you know organizational boundaries and then started to grow uh, where you for some reason lose touch with each other you stop talking uh, uh, you, you know new people come in um, um, and the transparency all of a sudden isn't that good. And then you start to introduce toll gates, control systems, uh, because you don't have the trust anymore and you lose, uh, a, a, not all, but a, a bit of that freedom that you have. And how, sh how should we deal with that problem? That's my question. Lovely. I would like Callum to start on this one, please. Yeah, so I guess, first of all, I'd like to um, almost dispel the myth that stakeholders are necessarily the more experienced people inside of teams. I think there's a weird perception or a weird expectation sometimes that because you are a stakeholder, whether it's product owner or a sort of tangential person who's involved in a project, that you are uh, more experienced and therefore more deserving of having this kind of perception of control over things. Um, I think the for me, the ultimate state I like to be in is where you can give freedom to the engineers, as you put it, and I'd love to ask you a follow-up question later about why engineers, why not just sort of people in general. Um, but we can give uh, control, we can give freedom to the uh, to the engineers without worrying about the stakeholders getting upset because it's an expectation management um, that, that the team needs to do or, or, a, or a handshake agreement with the stakeholders as to where responsibility and, uh, and ownership and autonomy really starts and ends. A stakeholder probably, at least in my opinion, should be somebody who is helping to set those guide rails I was talking about earlier, who's uh, setting good challenges, good objectives, uh, good sort of key measures for the team's progress. However, they shouldn't be a person who should get worried about um, giving the team too much control, giving them freedom to do things, because at that point, they're not being a stakeholder, they're being a micromanager. And I think that's a key distinction inside of this. Awesome. Uh, Robert, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it, this is this is actually a very interesting question, and I mean, I, I think it's sort of I'd like to unpack it because I actually see two two and at least two answers that are linked to this one, and that is sort of like more freedom will most likely lead to less control. That is more or less a, a fact, right? I mean, or the perceived control, uh, which is the core of the question. And the other one is if we then look at the second part. Uh, we already acknowledge we have less perceived control. And that's, that means that we need to focus on building the building of trust. And, and that is what I believe to be sort of the core of this challenge, because it's all centered around the trust. Uh, I mean, and my experience is that the, the reason for this lack of trust is typically that engineers and stakeholders when i when i'm thinking of stakeholders they don't have a common language which means that sort of when we are talking about sort of guide rails or requirements and all of this we are not sort of able to have common terms on what we mean sort of what is this feature what should it do what are the technical aspects of it meaning that sort of stakeholders say one thing this is what i want to have achieved engineers say oh i interpret this as these requirements i'm going to work on those and that sort of, in many cases, this actually fails because engineering builds something that stakeholders 
didn't sort of think about or they're doing it on a sort of on a timeline that doesn't really match or you know the milestones for that delivery is not sort of to sort of to the uh, to the liking of the stakeholders in this case and that's when we start to get micromanagement right that's when we get involvement of stakeholders because they don't believe that engineering is capable of doing engineering i mean so that sort of and sort of that all comes back to that there is a lack of communication and understanding of sort of what are we doing and what are the expected outputs and that's what we need to attack uh, I think uh, my answer kind of ties into this one a bit, but uh, it's back to the guide rails thing. And guide rails, you should go all the way to the top, essentially. And this is kind of what we do. Fortunately, we're in a relatively small organization where we can set these uh, guide uh, guide rails in a way that um, can be easily pointed at from everybody's job and everybody's tasks. So, like, while freedom is extremely important, you know, being guided overall by a vision. Uh, it's important so we don't lose the sight of what we're aiming for. So we need to make sure we're prioritizing like the right tasks and able to achieve those milestones. For us, what we do in Cybo is that we uh, give the developers a lot of freedom to explore the way they wish, but they have to reach the end goal of achieving what we call must-win battles, like the, the yearly must-win battles for this year and next year. And they're generally very simple. There's like Usually one or two for the for the um, division that that they're in, and then there's two or three for the overall organization, and everything should be able to like point back up to that thing. So, if the developers go off and spend too much time exploring uh, and not getting to that goal, and we're doing healthy check-ins, we should be able to pull back on rails at some point, right? Um, uh, as long as everyone is repeating the mantra of what is the goal and everyone has that very clearly put in front of them in the dailies and the weeklies and the uh, you know whatever check-ins that you have with all the stakeholders but that being said and last last point in this is if you're a developer and you're working on a project having too much freedom to do the thing your own way can be problematic in the long run because well if you've got a program that you're not going to be working on two years from now and you don't have the right documentation or process that you've been following because uh, you're doing it your own way uh, you're just making a headache for the people that are taking, going to inherit that project from you in the future. So I think that some process needs to be, uh, you can't have total ownership and freedom to do it the way you want to do. There needs to be some sort of a baseline processy or like uh, way of working, specifically around development work, I think, because of uh, the code is living. It's like ongoing beyond the people who who originally built it. Um, that's not the same actually for for art, let's say, or design to the same to the same extent. Generally speaking, those things kind of you see is what you get. But actually, with code, it's all under the hood. There's a lot of things that are not documented correctly. It can be problematic. So, with developers specifically, and that's what the question was entailing. I think that uh, a little less freedom to do their own way is actually probably a better is better for the project overall. But I'm not a developer, so I'm not a programmer. So maybe I'm wrong in that one. Yeah, I just wanted to to uh, elaborate a bit on your answer there, Robert, uh, on on communication, which I think is you can't stress that enough. I think that that, like I said, in my experience as organizational organizations change, you lose communication for some reason, uh, and when you stop talking to to someone or to to people around you, um, uh, you also lose that 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 uh, and I'm talking soft things here. You, you lose. You don't. You don't know the person that you're. That whoever is your stakeholder, who's uh, whoever is who wants you to build something. And I think it's super important to have that uh, social connection outside what you're doing. And it's not only about setting guardrails and and you know uh, expressing clear goals, but also to have you know uh, some sort of personal connection. It might be. Very easy, um, um, yeah. And I think you know communication. Um, when you have that, I think it's very easy to you know talk about harder things that that uh, um, you know directly ties into the thing the things that you're doing. Uh, uh, you know, setting those guardrails and and, and have a common common view on on expectations and goals. Um, um, that's very important to me, at least. I have a question, guys. So when it comes to stakeholders, uh, like what Marcus said, like 
how do we actually keep that connection? Because I'm just thinking like, I'm thinking my experience, like if you know HR as HR, it's very difficult to empathize with like what they need and same for like marketing team or so on. So as a team gets larger, uh, kind of what strategies have you witnessed to work well with your team? Also context, if it's a really remote culture, that's even more difficult usually because you're not in person or you don't sit next to each other. So yeah, I'll let Callum uh, take that first and we can come to you Owen. Yeah, a former mentor of mine back in like AAA and PC days had a statement that it always lived with me, which was keep your friends close and your stakeholders closer. Um, with with that in mind, I think as an industry, we've gradually created these these kind of middle tier management roles that are there to facilitate that stakeholder relationship. And I when I say middle tier management, I mean that as no sort of disrespect, they're still part of the creative process, part of the team. But roles like producer, product manager, scrum master, there are certain elements of the of the uh, the role itself that are requirements where they will interface and interact with the stakeholders, partly acting as a buffer or a shield or a communication translator sometimes, because to your point, Robert, sometimes the stakeholders and the team don't have the same vocabulary or same language. So there is some sort of middle management function that works, works part of the time to try and make sure that the communication and facilitation and shared understanding is, is, uh, is, is there between all different parties. And that should hopefully scale to things like, you know, your, uh, your C-suite leadership team, it should scale to your marketing team, your product management team, there should be somebody or some parts of your team that is always just making sure there's alignment, visibility and transparency between different, uh, between different roles. One particular use case I like to give is that it's, it's quite common to have the kind of us and them of development versus publishing, right? The, the game team versus the marketing team or the, sort of the, the marketing user acquisitions and everything it takes to get the game in front of your players. And there's often a healthy but sometimes unhealthy tension between those two different disciplines. Um, one of my personal favorite techniques is to set up what I call the product steering group, where just once a week, the product manager, product marketing manager and producer, the three Ps, sit in a room and just discuss like their upcoming plans for the next week and make sure that everybody agrees the thing they're doing together for the different things they're trying to all do to ultimately hit the same end goal, release a game and have it be successful, are actually all moving in the same direction. Awesome. Uh, Owen, yeah, you had something to say? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I think you're, there's two aspects there. First is cross team like a stakeholdership and then you're working cross teams which is its own challenge i think that the, there can always be friction there and, and things can can definitely pop up uh you know i think fostering a good work culture and you know is really important in these kind of scenarios and making sure that everyone is feeling part of one team right that's kind of essentially what you want to have again working a smaller organization can be really beneficial for this um but a competition is always healthy but it shouldn't shouldn't be the thing that dominates i think one of the things that i like to to put in place when it comes to um, the uh, responsibilities or the kind of what the, the team needs to have or the stakeholder needs to have is not only do they need to be a stakeholder for the product, but they should also be a stakeholder for the team. And what that means is then they also have like the, a, a must win battle of our team need to be happy, right? And how do we measure that, right? So if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're only championing the product and the, whatever the thing is you're building all the time and not the team, uh, that's a problem. But if actually part of your job as a stakeholder is to make sure the team are growing and building up and that's its own track within how you're measured successfully in your stakeholdership, then that helps you align yourself with the product and the team much better. So, you know, we do things like that to make sure that our team are constantly championed in their own way through learnings, you know, maybe they have to do coursework courses or we do team lunches, you know, anything that will get the team together and feel that they're part of um, that their voice is also uh, being heard in in the process of building this product. So um, that doesn't solve the cross team issues like across the organization directly, but it does allow the stakeholder to feel more involved with the team and they are part of the team or the team is part of them. And so it's something we, we try and encourage. Awesome. Uh, Robert, you had something to say? Yeah, I think to me, sort of the only thing I would like to sort of add to this discussion is really that sort of one of, one of my key takeaways being both on the floor doing engineering transcending to technical leadership and doing all the way into sort of uh, being almost part of C-suite and sort of seeing all of those all different aspects of it is that the key to me is sort of making sure that company, the entity has a vision. That vision needs to be able to translate to all layers of the organization so that every, is a, every individual is able to sort of work on a common goal by themselves. And that sort of, that is sort of key of that communication ladder meaning that everything is transparent. Everybody understands what they should be aiming for. 
Fantastic. Lovely. Let's move on to the final question, which is Owen's. Owen, what is your question and the context behind it? Um, oh, my question is something we kind of touched on a bit, but ownership is coupled with accountability. And as such, how do we as leads foster a culture of accountability for our team? And the context behind it is I just generally don't believe that you can't have one without the other. And the team can be given all the ownership in the world, but if you don't hold them accountable or you don't hold yourself accountable for, for something, then it's kind of becomes irrelevant or it's very easy for you to lose sight of that original goal that's being set or the, the kind of tenants that you have to work to. So accountability is something you need in order to make sure that you're being checked against uh, uh, the goals. And how do we foster that in a way that's conducive to making a better product, I guess? All righty. Callum, do you want to start off on this one? Yeah, I think when, when we think about accountability, there's, there's a level of accountability the team themselves have to hold themselves um, to. Um, they should be account. They should be aware they're accountable for doing certain things, to hitting a certain quality level, to hitting a certain budget, whatever constraints are put upon them. Um, but within the team itself, I really prefer dynamics where the team is kind of holding each other to an accountable level of quality as well, like the uh, the programmers might try and hold each other accountable to a, a level of implementation, like the smoothness of the game, the feel of the game, the performance it runs. Uh, the art team might try, might try and hold each other to an accountable level of quality for uh, the visual aspect of the game, how pretty it looks, how well it functions, how quickly it loads in different asset sizes. Um, but as, as well as that, I think there's this kind of intangible, touchy-feely accountability that we all have. Like we all, when we play our games, hopefully, have a feeling of it being a good thing or a bad thing, like we kind of know through experience or, or through sort of intrinsic gut feel whether the game is going in the right direction or not. And the team I would always encourage to have that same sort of uh, openness and candor with each other, where they can hold each other accountable. They can sit down, they can uh, give constructive criticism, constructive feedback, they can they can play the field together, they can um, give each other negative points about it, they can raise things they particularly like, and just encourage that accountability and that shared ownership between each other. Because I think, uh, as we said at the start of the conversation, autonomy can't really come without the ownership piece. Uh, and that that kind of intrinsically brings those things all together quite nicely within the right team dynamic, I think. Yeah, and I also think that that um, uh, as uh, senior members of the team, you can always lead by example, right? Um, uh, you know, do not be, we talked about this before, um, do not be afraid of, of failure uh, because that's okay. Um, make sure that that is clearly communicated and if you fail that, you know, there's no, no blame game. Uh, happening. Um, um, so, uh, as a senior people, senior person, once again, um, uh, clearly stating these things is one thing, but you you preferably should also be a part of living by those values and make that very clear to to all team members. Uh, and then I think you will automatically foster a culture where where, where this you know, naturally happens. Awesome, Robert. Thoughts. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, as a long-time engineer, I wholeheartedly agree with sort of the coupling between ownership and accountability. But that also brings me to sort of what I think sort of is one of the, the sort of things that are hardest to tackle with this question, and that is uh, sort of the visibility of the accountability, right? And sort of that it's visible to the same way in all parties, because the worst form of the worst form of accountability is when something it, when it's when someone is accountable for something that they have no ownership of right because they do they cannot do anything about it they're just accountable for it conversely sort of the best form of accountability then is when the person has full and ultimate ownership <clears throat> the key is sort of since we're talking about teams there is no such thing as a full ownership it doesn't exist right you have it's a shared ownership but that also means that sort of it's hard to sort of point the accountability and, and couple it with the ownership, which means sort of that the, the the sort of the challenge is sort of how we express accountability in such a way that everybody sort of feels sort of that ownership that is required to get that accountability working for them, meaning that they actually feel that accountability that they can do something about it. Because while, without that, it breaks down. I mean, I myself have been in many situations where I've been accountable and couldn't do anything about it. And it's really sort of, it's one of those where I don't want to be here <laughs> because I can't do anything about the situation and yeah, I just get the blame for it, right? 
versus the other one sort of, whoa, I can do whatever I like and nobody cares about, about the output. That's also sort of like no accountability, I can do whatever I like. Sort of, so it sort of, it ties together sort of like, how do we make sort of accountability on a team level with individual persons feeling the ownership? So uh, we're talking a little bit about buy-in, right? can't just dump accountability on someone and ownership on someone without them having some sort of buy-in, right? Meaning they're there at uh, some point in the early stages when things are being agreed upon and they're uh, reviewing it uh, in a sane way. You can't say, oh yeah, uh, I agree to my team moving this mountain, right? When they have never been told anything about it. And then you turn to the team and you say, we're, our job is to move the mountain. You have total freedom and how to do it, but um, you know, you know, it's an impossible task. So, uh, I think buy-in is really important. And when buy-in, with buy-in, I think another part of this is really important for upward uh, uh, um, explaining uh, to people uh, maybe at the top level is a very clear risk assessment, right? So it's like, okay, we're going to do this thing and we're bought into it now. We're like we've we've looked at it, we've analyzed that it's probably something that we we can do, but there are unknowns and there's some risks here. And as long as those risks are then clearly labeled and shown so that when the thing is taking off at the start that if things go wrong and they're within the realm of the risks that you have outlined everyone's been informed and it was a chance that you know that there was going to be a delay or there was a chance that the thing was a bigger than you expected right and so i think that's good practice for a team to uh, as taking part of their uh, ownership is that they have to do risk assessment in order to be able to um, kind of challenge the accountability to it. So that's one aspect. And then the other one is um, when we are checking along the way, we do, where in my team, we do a bi-weekly essentially check-in with uh, stakeholders across the board. And we actually look at the progress on all of the um, goals that we're set out to do, whatever they may be. And there you go, green uh, on track, you know, amber, there's some problem, red looks like we're going to miss it. And for whatever reason, and um, we try and foretell that as much as possible so that there's no surprises. You don't always get it perfect, but it's a good, it's a good practical way to try and make sure that the team have visibility on it and that they know we're com they're communicating this back to uh, additional stakeholders. So maybe that's some practical ways for people to take on board. One of the parts of your question, Owen, was the, the second part around the, the fostering a culture of accountability inside a team. Um, and I want to just kind of touch upon that for a second while also using the C word, not the C word you're all um, dreading, I'm going to say, but the other one, coronavirus. Uh, during COVID, we've all ended up having to move to remote working systems. And that, that kind of team culture, that team spirit, we all took for granted of people being in the office, that camaraderie of people just intrinsically getting it and kind of having that shared collective headspace and communication flowing easier. That was kind of broken through the, the digital world we were having to work in where people were working remotely. Um, one of the things that I think has been a particularly interesting shift as we've moved into that more digital working space or that more remote working model uh, is now the ability for us to, I guess, better identify the strengths and weaknesses of our team members and be more open to bring in remote or hybrid roles rather than relying on the culture within the team in an office location being a thing we could build some core assumptions around as leaders of projects and so on. Um, and I particularly actually, I think it's one of the few benefits of the coronavirus is I think it's kind of fast forwarded our ability as, as project managers, as stakeholders, as vision holders for games to be able to actually build better structures in place to allow our teams to foster creative uh, spirit, to, to foster entrepreneurship and to build trust with each other in a more tangible, meaningful way than having those inter-office friend-based relationships. I think I've, I probably speak for all of us when I say some teams have got too much of a familial friend feel sometimes. And that can sometimes affect their objectivity, affect their ability to hold each other accountable. Whereas when it's slightly more remote, it's a little bit more depersonalized and it's a little bit more business focused sometimes about trying to get towards the best possible end result for the business rather than making sure your friend or the person you like in the office is happy. What do you guys think on that? I can go. I mean, it's hard to answer fully in a couple of minutes, but um, it's a different way to work. But I think that we're seeing a lot of teams go remote working now fully flexibility for i think there's going to be a shift in how teams operate efficiently in a remote working scenario and there are people who are going to be less efficient and those teams are going to fail and there's going to be teams that are going to be more efficient and those teams are going to go and talk and go talks and conferences and explain how they made that hit game from like seven different countries and you know in two months or whatever it may be so i think that it's a different way to work um i i know from um 
personal experience of the teams that I uh, am adjacent to, at least, so I'm not talking about my team directly, there is very much a sense of back to the office, it's what they want. They want to be around each other. Uh, maybe it's a partly because there's accountability and uh, they feel that they're working together and being visible, but also because they feel that they actually are part of the same team by being physically closer together. And that's uh, that helps them kind of process the product uh, goals they're trying to get to. Um, I had something else to say, but I'll, I can I can hold off. Uh, I think there's uh, other comments here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, one of the things that I think, at least to me, that, that the coronavirus brought along in sort of the new way of working is that I think that everybody has sort of learned the way to sort of put words to what they're going, what they're doing, right? Meaning that everybody needs to more or less explain what they're doing, how they're working, meaning that sort of the whole idea of scrum and sort of sprint planning all of that sort of is now sort of very much physical in that sense because that's the way you need to do it you need to sort of show what you're doing in one way or another and i think sort of the old sort of issue that we had with teams that might be underperforming is that you could hide within that team so that this new way of working there's no really no way of hiding which also means that sort of it's so much easier to sort of go in and sort of help the team to get more functional, right? Because you can catch the problem early versus before you could just see that it was sort of lower output, but you couldn't sort of point the finger to what what sort of what the problem was. And it might not be, I mean, it's typically not sort of that people are underperforming individually. Is that sort of they're underperforming as a team in that case, which means that they might have a problem with their planning process. They might have a problem with sort of trust. They might have a problem with 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 stating requirements, there might have been problems with essentially explaining sort of what their roadmap is. And now they actually have learned how to do that in the sense that we need to document it. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking now from my experience, when because this podcast came about from the coronavirus pandemic. And one of the most common topics when we started was remote working. And my experience with remote working, it basically, at least from our perspective, which I think there are some parallels, uh, it standardizes documentation because everyone at some point might be remote. Everyone needs to have at least their targets you know, on a, a place where it's visible and this historical evidence. So like Robert was saying, it's very easy from at least from, let's say, a producer, for example, you can just see, ah, this is what that person tried to do that day. This is why he didn't. And you can, again, zoom out, see what happens from a team perspective. And before, if everyone's in the office, it's easy to be lazy because you can say, Look at all the good work we're doing. I don't want to spend time on admin. But when you have a bit of standard, because someone might be remote, then you can, you know, have all the meetings remote and then have extra features like that, where it's just when you standardize that documentation process, I feel like it's easy, easier, I guess, to give that accountability and be quite individual with it as well, because everyone's on the same page. Awesome. Any final points? Yes, Owen. Yeah, I have one more thing. I think we're kind of running out of time, but I, I was going to throw this in as a kicker because I feel like it's an interesting scenario that we're, we're in, uh, and maybe not all of us in this in this uh, group, but we work in free-to-play mobile games, and there's a very, um, what seems to be kind of an emergent thing happening at the moment in terms of giving ownership, right, is literally giving ownership like giving everybody on the team a royalty share in the product and that ties them all together to want to work on the best product, right? The artist is actually now thinking, will this color or this uh, character go closer to um, the target audience that we've set, right? So there's a, we're in an industry where it actually can shape how teams are created, how businesses are run. And it's not, all that's something i don't think every industry has luxury for and not every games industry for sure uh, does, uh, in general doesn't have that so i just wanted to kind of put that out there and say like that is an angle that i'm seeing especially in free-to-play um some studios doing this where it's yep you get a rev share split across the team and go and that gives them loads of drive to take ownership and responsibility and accountability uh i know we're at a time close to it so i thought i'd just put that in there it's a it's a method uh, that, that I'm seeing potentially working. So thoughts maybe? Just to uh, quickly build on that, I know we are close to time, so apologies, Harry. I think that's really good. I, I'm a big, big fan of, uh, of sort of team shared uh, incentive systems like that uh, because it forces the team to be accountable to each other as well. You don't 
uh, come into work and like do a bad job because you're letting everybody else on the team down then. Like, your performance could drag the team average down, which hurts everybody else's remuneration. You're no longer just an individual out for yourself. And so I do really like those kind of shared uh, incentives, whether it's bonuses, whether it's revenue share, whether it's company stock options, those things that you're collectively working towards as a team really reinforce good, solid team practices. Fantastic. Lovely. We're out of time, so I'm going to conclude there. I think that was a fantastic podcast. So this has been the Evolution Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Owen, Robert, Callum and Marcus for joining us today and providing the insights. And thank you everyone at home for listening. If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. Foku is spelled P-H-O-K-O-U.